Welcome to Fitness for Consumption. This is a podcast with a very unique view on all things related to fitness. I'm Dr. Paul Juris, kinesiologist, research scientist, performance coach, author, and innovator. I'm here with my co-host, motor learning and clinical specialist, Gregory Gordon. Together, we have over 50 years of practical and scientific experience in things relating to fitness, performance, and health. Join us as we share our stories and experiences and take a deep dive into essential fitness concepts and some highly complex issues too. Don't worry, we promise to keep it practical. And you know what else we promise? We're not here to tell you what to think or what to do. There's enough of that going around. We're here to offer you a different perspective on fitness based on something called human movement science. Spend some time with us and you'll think more critically about what people are telling you. You'll sort through it all and understand it more completely and you'll become self-empowered to make better decisions for you or for those with whom you're working. Are you ready? Let's get started. You are listening to Fitness for Consumption. I'm Paul Juris, and here with me, as usual, is my friend and colleague, Gregory Gordon. Gigi, we have a very special guest with us today, fitness legend and icon, Ms. Kelly Roberts. Kelly's a personal trainer, a group fitness instructor. She's an author on fitness and a continuing education provider. And most notably, she's been named the IDEA International Instructor of the Year. She's received the Empower Inspiration Award. And she's an inductee into the Fitness Hall of Fame. We are so delighted to have her here with us. Kelly, welcome to Fitness for Consumption. Yay! (laughs) Thanks so much. It's great to be with you guys. We are so glad to have you. And, you know, in addition to the myriad accomplishments that we spoke of before, I want to mention that you are or was, I don't know if you still are, a cyclocross racer. And so in addition to everything else that you do, you are a serious badass. So for me, I'm just really happy to have you here. Someone who can do that and do it seriously and, and at a very high level, kudos to you. Seriously. Yeah. I said at seriously someone... like 12 times in the last minute. So At least um, someone here is an athlete. Yeah, exactly. Kelly, could you actually, I have, my brother is a cycling fanatic, so I, I happen to know what cyclocross is, but I, I have a guess that most of our audience won't know exactly what cyclocross is. So do you mind just explaining that really quick? Well, it's uh, this insane cycling sport where you ride a road bike that's slightly modified and you ride in dirt, snow, ice, mud, all weather conditions. I've raced at national championships in a blizzard. It was a whiteout. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've raced in a foot of mud in Portland. Um, it, it, it's an obstacle course on a bike. You, you pick up your bike and you hurdle carrying your right. bike. Yeah. <laughs> Studded bike tire. You run carrying a perfectly rideable bike. 
Yeah, so fitness masochism, basically. <laughs> sort of, yeah. <laughs> well, awesome. Yeah, that is really incredible. So, you know, while we're on that topic of what you've done, um, one thing we like to do on the podcast, Kelly, is sort of share with our listeners our own personal experience. How did we get here? Um, you've been in this industry for so long, and you and I have known each other for decades. And um, can you just tell people, just share a little bit about yourself? Like, when did this all start for you? Why did it start for you? Where were you? And kind of what was the journey that you took to get from there to like sitting here with us, talking to us knuckleheads? Um, well, I'll try and make a long story short. In 1986, I was working as a model in Australia. I'd just come back from Italy where I was working as a model. Mm -hmm. And I got fired from a job for being too big. <laughs> they told me I was too big. Laura, uh, and I was a size 2-4 at the time. I was really tiny. And they mm -hmm. fired me for being too big. And I thought, you know what, I never, I never want to do this again. I do not want to represent women in this way. If mm. I'm a normal healthy weight and I'm too big, then this is not for me. So I, I was going to the gym at the time and one of the instructors said, oh, you should become an instructor. So, <laughs> I, you know, I loved everything about fitness. And so I took a course in Australia, which was in those days called ACHPA, the Australian Council for Health, Education and Recreation. And it was a two-week, 14-day, eight-to-six hmm. course a three-hour proctored exam with, and then I became a registered fitness leader with 40 hours of face-to-face -face supervised work. And it well, was that's more than you great. have to do here, yeah. I mean, for most certifications, right? That's pretty intensive. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah so was what was the title again, Kelly, if you don't mind repeating that? the It was called ACHPA, A-C-H-P-E-R. But it's no, what, uh, Australian like... Council for Health, Education and Recreation, and then I was a registered fitness leader. Fitness leader. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. fitness leader is synonymous with like a personal trainer, right? That's Well, I was certified to teach classes and work. In, this was before uh, personal training. This was oh. in 1986. And at that stage, there might have been personal training in America, but it didn't exist in, in Australia. Mm -hmm. I worked in the weight room for $5 an hour, wiping sweat off machines and putting <laughs> the weight plates back mm -hmm. uh -huh. <laughs> for $5 an hour. Doing but the concept of, of paying someone one-on-one -on -one for a structured workout. Yeah, PJ, I don't know. 1986 to me feels like the really early genesis of like, you know, personal training as a career in uh, yes, the US. So that's just when I finished my master's degree. And, and at that time, personal training was just starting to emerge a little bit. Um, there were a lot of corporate fitness programs and things like that. But, but group fitness, um, which at the time wasn't really called group fitness, I think it was just aerobics. Right. Mm -hmm. um, that was the, the prevalent form of fitness in those days, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so what did you do after you um, got that cert certificate, Kelly? Well, I started teaching full time. I fell in, I just fell completely in love with making a difference in people's lives. I, I saw directly that you could change someone's life. There was a, a man who was taking my class who was 500 pounds. Ooh. who, Yeah, I know he was very big. And I 
gave him the kid glove treatment. I encouraged him. I, I just really focused on keeping him comfortable and successful and he kept coming back and he dropped all his excess weight, had wow. surgery to have all the excess skin removed mm -hmm. and he was a normal weight and he came up to me with his old jeans that were, you know, uh -huh. like he stepped two legs into one pant leg. Wow. And he held them out to the side and he said, this is because of you. And wow. And you didn't have on, to yell at him either, did you? I didn't yell at him. I never did. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's an amazing feeling, right? When you feel like, you know, you really have made a difference. You've helped someone make a difference in their own life. Yeah. That, that was it. That was I from that moment on. You know, I already really enjoyed it. But from that moment on, I knew that that was what I wanted to do. And uh, it's funny because I came to the United States in 1990 because I wanted to teach continuing education. Back in 1986, the front row of the aerobics class got got pulled up onto the podium to teach. There, there was very few people who were actually certified. And so what people were doing in class back then was really strange i was just going to ask so when you were teaching classes would you develop the content was because like in 1986 there wasn't so much content available right like it wasn't like there was 10,000 classes already so how did you come up with what you were going to teach in a class well it was called freestyle <laughs> we developed our own freestyle teaching okay there so was each instructor kind yeah, of made up their created own. their own stuff yeah but there was pre-choreographed back in those days before body pump, Les Mills had two programs. One was called Superfit and the other one was called Jazzergetics. And I used mm -hmm. to choreograph for their Superfit program. So there was pre-choreographed back then, but it wasn't very disseminated. It was isolated to uh, New Zealand and Australia. Okay. So that you actually helped develop some of the content and then other people, I'm sure, saw what you guys were doing and sort of, you know, from there built off on their own a little bit? Yeah. Well, I, I wanted to do, I wanted to be a continuing education provider. That was just my, my dream because what I was seeing in classes was not what I wanted to see from other instructors. I just saw this giant gaping gap of knowledge and understanding of how the body works. Mm -hmm. And I, I just really felt passionate about it. Cool. So had that that led you to come to America. That's where the like the certifying bodies were for being a continuing education provider. Yeah. Well, there were no opportunities in Australia to do that. I either had to go back to college and um, and and get a college education or get a completely hands on education and travel. And so I I decided I wanted the hands on experience. And, you know, of course, I now I wish I'd gone to college, but oh, well. I, uh, well, there's I always time for that, you know. You yeah, that's know. true. It's never too late. <laughs> yeah, yeah, never absolutely. too late. Yeah. Um, but I, I wanted to do the Idea Foundation certification, which was to become ACE. And I got ACE or Idea Foundation certified personal trainer. And right after I did that certification, they became ACE. Idea became ACE? Idea, Idea had two, two branches. There was Idea oh, and Idea Foundation. Ah, Idea Foundation was the educational branch of Idea. And 
it, it turned into ACE. Interesting. So idea for any of our listeners that don't know, uh, PJ, how would you describe idea exactly? They, they have a journal, they offer health insurance for personal trainers. Um, how would you describe idea exactly? Um, you know, they're, they were one of the original certifying organizations and ACE and idea and ACSM, I think were really the, at the forefront of some type of certification process early on. And, and I may be mistaken, but I thought idea was focused mostly on group exercise early on. But again, I wasn't, you know, I think I taught, I actually once taught an exercise physiology class as part of an idea certification. I did that at Hunter College, actually, in New York City Mm. many, many years ago. I think it was in the early 90s that we did that. Wow. And it's actually part of an idea certification? It was part of the idea certification. There was physiology. Mm. I think I may have taken it a little too seriously and <laughs> went too deep into the Krebs cycle. I think I lost some people <laughs> oh, during God. that one. I'm still traumatized from the Krebs cycle. <laughs> so, <laughs> we all? Um, but, uh. but yeah, but they sort of, they led the way. They, they were the trailblazers for fitness certification early on. And this was before... NASM and and NSCA even. I mean, this was going way, way back to the foundation of what became a career for fitness professionals. So um, if you came through there, you came through one of those organizations that really led the charge in getting people better prepared to deliver on the promise that Kelly's been talking about, helping people, making people's lives better. So yeah, I first started as a trainer in like the mid to late nineties. And when I was first coming up, ACE was considered the gold standard. When I asked people, what should I do? Where should I start? ACE was considered like the gold standard of like, you know, the basic general certification. Yeah. Now there are over 300 of them. So, you know, back then there, there were fewer to choose from and it became a more simple choice. Now there's so many of them. And, you know, I, I credit those people who, who go through the tougher programs, right? They are tougher and they're harder to, to acquire a certification through, but you know, those people who are willing to bear it and go through it and and try to learn more, you know, I credit those folks. Uh, There are a lot of them that you can get a a personal training certification over a weekend, which is a little Mm -hmm. scary to me. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. When I did the ACE PT certification, there was no manual. It was before there was a manual. I was wow. in one of the first groups. They gave us a reading list. And okay. I had to go to the library. Do you know what the of like library research is? paper? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. What, I haven't been to a library in a long time. <laughs> it was before computers. But the reading list was like research papers they wanted you to find? Um, well, we had the Idea Foundation Group Exercise Instructor Manual is one of the one of the um, resources. And then I can't remember what the other resources was. It was 91, 1991. So it was so, so ultimately you got certified as a continuing education provider. Yeah, but I, I, um, I, it's funny. I, I got asked to do a video with share a fitness mm-hmm. a step video with share, and that kind of people it launched me. People wanted to know what I was doing because 
it was a very unusual situation because I was in the video with her, coaching her. So what was that experience like? Unforgettable. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the wig, the wig, the Cher's wig technician got paid more for one day work than I did for three months of work. Wow. All right. Well, first of all, that's news to me because I actually watched the video in preparation for this interview and I would have no idea if that's a wig. So that's interesting. Yeah. How involved was she in terms of any of the choreography or? Oh, no, not at no. all. It was completely yeah, okay. me. Yeah. yeah no, no. But it she, sort of was she, the golden age of celebrity training, celebrity coaching, celebrity fitness. I mean, that's when it really started to come out. And I think you're right. If you were working with a celebrity at the time, suddenly everybody needed to know who you were, what you were doing, why you were doing it. I mean, you you were in the spotlight at that point, right? Yeah, I know. Shoot. Yeah, I was a question on Jeopardy. Wow. And they got it right. <laughs> okay, amazing. I'm humbled. I am truly (laughs) I cannot say that I've ever been a question on Jeopardy. That's astounding. And so after that came out, what kind of opportunities did did that lead to? It led to a ton of opportunities because I toured the world promoting that video Mm because she didn't want to. Mm -hmm. And uh, then CBS Fox received so much fan mail about me that I got my own contract. And then when I was to do more videos and when I was touring to promote those videos, a publisher reached out to me and asked me to write a book, Mm -hmm. a consumer market book. So I did that. And uh, all around that time, I started getting asked to to speak at conferences. Mm -hmm. So I got, you know, I got I got my credential for continuing education. I got approved as a provider. Gotcha. So all that traveling, that's like a full-time gig basically, right? Yeah, it was, yeah. I'm, I'm, let's put it this way. I'm a million miler with just one airline and I didn't <laughs> always fly with one airline. You, you know, it, it's when, there was a time when I was traveling a lot when I was at Cybex and I think one year I, I flew about 200,000 miles in the year. And, and so I got upgraded, you know, every flight I was flying first class and business class. Nice. Overseas. Yeah, but you know what? You, there's a price you pay for that stuff. Yeah, you know, people used yeah. to comment or or complain to me, "Hey, you're getting upgraded all the time." I'm like, "Yeah, but I've got to travel like crazy in order <laughs> to acquire this." So, you know, there are pros and cons to that, right? You get to see the world, but you get tired doing it. Yeah, you get very tired doing it. I remember one. There was a three week span where I went to Brazil for for a week and a half and then I went to Italy for three days I came back for two days and then I went to Israel for a week and I remember by the time I got to Israel at 11 o'clock one morning I just sat there and I just kind of fell sideways onto the bed and passed (laughs) out (laughs) I was just so tired So, Kelly, you know, you've been in gyms all over the world, obviously. You don't stay in your hotel room. You you (laughs) hit the gyms and you see what people are doing. And I've done it and I'm sure Gigi's done it. Yeah. And, you know, I I have to say that there are times when I'm working out and I don't interact with people. I'm pretty much mind my own business. But sometimes I look at somebody doing something and it's sort of a head shaker. 
Mm -hmm. Like, wait a minute, what's going on over there? What are they doing and why are they doing it? And what can we say about it? So for example, I'm sure you've seen many times in the gym, somebody on a treadmill and they're walking and they've got the treadmill set to an incline of about 10%, which is a pretty steep incline. And while they're doing that, their hands are on top of the console. So they're holding on to the console and they're leaning back while they're doing it. Now, for me, you know, I look at that and I think, well, why the heck are they doing that? And so, first of all, why are they doing that? Well, the holding on strategy is probably good because they probably lack the ankle mobility to walk at it that kind of incline, so it, <laughs> it levels their ankles out. Exactly, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the stress, can you imagine the stress on your calf muscles when mm. when you're doing something like that? If you were to try to remain upright without holding on, and it's going to put a lot of stress on your legs. I think there's an ulterior motive in there for people, though. It's not just to avoid that... Uh, discomfort in their legs. There's something else going on, right? There's got to be. Yeah. Well, I think people tend to pay a lot of attention to the calories that the machine says that they burn. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. And yeah, yeah. And, and you and you know, if you've been through certification programs, you know those calorie calculations probably come from the ACSM formulas for calculating calories when you're walking and running. And of course, there's additional calorie burn for going up an incline. And so people see that on the treadmill and they see that they're burning more calories according to the console. And so they go, oh, wow, I just burned another 300 calories. But the reality of the situation is the treadmill doesn't know they're holding on to the console. And when you hold on to the console, you actually don't burn any more calories than if you were just walking on a level surface. Because it's the fact that you are upright and leaning into it and using your calf muscles and having to push yourself up a hill, that's what's requiring additional energy expenditure. So holding on to the treadmill like that probably doesn't do a whole lot for you um, unless, you know, psychologically it makes you feel better Then go for it. Right. Because someone probably saw on social media that, hey, if you're going to, if you want to do high intensity cardio, you should you know, put the, like on the biggest loser, you know, the, the, the bane of my fitness existence. That's the, the first day, like Kelly, your 500 pound client, his first day at the biggest loser ranch is going to be set up on a treadmill at nine miles an hour at a 10% incline. So that's what they do because that's what they've seen. But PJ, let's play this game. Let's say with everything we bring up, give me a better alternative. To walking up an incline, yeah, holding it, on like that. Yeah. What's a better alternative? You know, I say keep the, if, if you want to burn more calories, one thing that you can do with any device, by the way, and whether it's a treadmill or a bike or an elliptical or anything like that, um, we did a study at Cybex where, in which we were looking at something called constant power output, which means we put someone on a device and we have them train at a fixed power. But what we did was we varied the speed at which they were creating mm-hmm. that. And what we learned was the faster you go, the more calories you burn. So if you're on an elliptical, if you're on an arc trainer, if you're on a bicycle, um, treadmills, you can't control resistance. So you can potentially put it on somewhat of an incline. But the goal is to try to go a little bit faster. 
Now, you don't want to go faster at a much easier resistance because that brings the power level down. So the, the goal is to try to maintain a relatively consistent power, but do it by going faster, not by increasing the resistance. And that's a good way to burn more calories. So we mentioned the term Goldilocks zone on another episode, Kelly. We spoke to um, a really well-known researcher, Dr. David Bame, and he's got what's called a Goldilocks zone for stretching. But PJ, that sounds like a Goldilocks zone for um, cardio. It is. And it's something that some people, you know, many people aren't aware of. Uh, but but moving quickly in a cardio environment actually has real benefit. So you don't have to put the treadmill up to 10% incline and hang on for dear life. Just bring it down to maybe a 2 or 3% incline and go as fast as you can. Yeah, if my you, better. If you don't yeah. want to run, then go, you know, at a, at a fast walk. Now, of course, when you're at three and a half, three point eight 3.8 miles per hour, you almost have to break into a run at that point it becomes very strenuous because you're in between the two but um certainly a good thing to do so anyway kelly like what have you seen in your travels like what, we, what can we talk about well i've seen ashtrays and alcohol at the snack bar in Italy. <laughs> <laughs> Working yeah, out was, with a beer in your hand. Working out with a beer in your hand. Yeah, there was. I once saw an ashtray on a on a stairmaster. That was in Italy, and uh, ashtrays and and alcohol at the at the juice bar in Italy. Um, that's kind of interesting. Um, no, I've I've really seen some very strange things, which is why I wanted to become a continuing education provider and cranking it at ten percent and and having someone hold on on to the console. And struggle to just even keep up with the with the belt doesn't make sense. You know, lower the treadmill down to a pace that you can mechanically walk with right. good movement skill, and maybe do some faster and slower, some intervals. So Kelly, as a continuing education provider, what's your general perspective on like to me? You know, when I first started going to gyms, uh, there was this concept of low or no impact, which we should also mention that anytime your foot's hitting the ground, there's a reaction force. So there's some impact, but relative to like doing high depth box jumps, you know, it's lower impact. But anyway, that was the trend back then, like low, what they called low impact and a lot of like choreographed dance moves and stuff. And then zoom to 2020, a lot of the group fitness, like in New York, it's all about like torturing, you know, like, you know, uh, I hate this term when people say it, but like CrossFit on steroids, you know, so every gym's marketing is like, you think that workout's tough? Like come to, you're going to vomit 30 minutes into this class. And it's like, you're doing all sorts of stuff. And, and look, PJ and I talk a lot about like in a, what we have this term, the fitness ecosystem, which is every tool, every modality is, is, um, you know, available depending on whatever your goal is. So not to say that flipping a tire, there couldn't be some benefit to it or running really fast on a high grade on a treadmill, there couldn't be some benefit to it. But what's your general perspective in terms of like how you've seen the shift and like the group fitness presenters you talk to, um, just sort of like what their perspective is in, in, in group fitness training recently? Well I, I think it's really a shame because I think a lot of the stuff that's going on in gyms is too hard for people. And, you know, I, I was 
trained to do to teach a class at a at a particular club that I was teaching at, and there were um, battle ropes and mm-hmm. push sleds and rowing machines, and so it was all this forward flexion, and then they would program deadlifts and squats and um, burpees, and the sled was a a, a a sliding device with weight plates on it, so you had to be completely on the ground with your hands, so in total forward flexion, combined with ropes, combined with rowing machines. And it's like, no, just no. Why, why, do you, why do you have to make it that hard? How about we do some sensible strength training of some sort that's appropriate and eat well and do some cardio? Like let's just, you don't have to kill yourself to get fit. I think it's crazy. But do you see the trend going to that extreme end? Oh, like, yeah, no, that yeah. it is very much there. This hit, hit, and hit, and, and harder hit, and higher hit, yeah, and super hit. <laughs> it's not good. I think that there are some people that that enjoy that kind of a workout. Mm-hmm. You know, I've created some uh, fitness experiences for people that have that sort of model built into it. But I agree with you. I think we're pushing people way too hard. And, you know, there is a gym in New York, and I don't need to mention the name of it, but they advertise themselves as the toughest workout in New York City. Yep. And they've been around, I think, for like seven or eight years, and they, they've had two locations, and they've been around for seven or eight years and they have two locations. In other words, <laughs> they don't have enough people going in there to expand. And the reality is, in my experience, most people want a great workout. They want to feel like they've accomplished something, but they don't want to feel half dead when they walk out the door. And I have to say, you know, in part, it troubles me because I am a research scientist and a lot of these methods come from the research that's been done. And so you look in the scientific literature and you see the benefits of high intensity interval training and everybody's running out there to implement the stuff. And for example, is Tabata. Tabata is really interesting because everybody wants to run out and do Tabata. Now, people use the word Tabata sort of ubiquitously for high intensity interval training. Peter, but do you want actually, to explain Tabata really quick? Because I'm not sure. Yeah, so it, Tabata is, first of all, was a researcher. Tabata is a person, a Japanese researcher. And he did a research study looking at the effects of a high-intensity interval training protocol. And that protocol, very specifically, is you work as hard as you can for 20 seconds, and then you get 10 seconds of recovery. 20 to 10 ratio, right? Or, or 2 to 1. And he got great results from it. So now everybody wants to run out and do Tabata. But here's the thing to consider. His subjects were college students. His subjects were probably college students in an exercise science class who were getting credit for being subjects. So they were highly motivated subjects. If you took people off the street and put them through that protocol, they would never go back and do it again. (laughs) And so you have to look at the context in which this stuff was done. Yeah. And, and it was, then ask it was yourself what reason. Yeah, it exactly. Only, it was only 12 weeks. They didn't, and they, they did seven or eight of these intervals. It was done on a bike. 
It was on a mechanically braked bike. They they kept quality of work. They did 170% of VO2 max every single interval. So it was extreme intensity. And they compared it with 70% of VO2 max, moderate intensity. And the biggest difference was the improvement in anaerobic capacity. Both right. groups improved aerobic capacity. Mm-hmm. So Right. Well, you would think that anaerobic capacity would improve when you're driving the anaerobic <laughs> metabolism that way. No kidding. <laughs> so there it is. On the other end of the spectrum, I think bodybuilders, by the way, are sort of sometimes like our uncredited street scientists, because there's one gym I go to every so often uh, that's really like a bodybuilding centric gym. And those guys like are creating their own rules with machines all the time. And, and, you know, sometimes I see something and in my mind, I'm thinking, oh, I think this person is trying to achieve X, like they're doing it in a way that I don't think actually achieves that objective. But what they're doing is really interesting to me. So have you ever seen something like that in a gym, like something you could think of that was cool, that was like totally out of left field, but like inspired you? Um, I see more things in classes that people get very creative with, but they end up doing something that they don't realize that they're doing. And and Mm. so, as you said, you know, they – Group fitness, you've got gravity, unless you're working with elastic resistance. Mm-hmm. Gravity, you know, if, if dumbbells are your, the only tool that you have, there's gravity. And and I, it just never ceases to amaze me. I see people holding dumbbells up overhead with their shoulders flexed and they pull down and say, squeeze. Mm-hmm. Um Wait, wait, for wait! A, Look, a I'm trying to, I'm trying to visualize this in my mind's eye. So, Kelly, if I understand this right, what you're saying is they're holding this dumbbell with their arms extended overhead, and they are instructed not to control it on the way down to accentuate the eccentric contraction, but they're instructed to actually pull this thing down. Yeah, they're acting as if the dumbbell is like a lat pull down machine, and they're pulling their their elbows towards their the side of the rib cage, as if they were doing a lat pull down, but they're holding onto dumbbells overhead. Um, there's just this overall, there's this overall lack of understanding of gravity. Simple biomechanics. I mean, that's not even getting into like real deep biomechanics. This is just which Basic. direction is the resistance going? Yeah. It's well, scary I, to think that's part of a certification program too. Well, I was I several years ago I was doing a reality show with um, this star of a reality show, and she was she had been asked to do a fitness video, mm-hmm. and so they asked me to come and consult with her and help her. And we were just we were I I was talking about the program that we were going to do a circuit training program. And dumbbells were the, was the exercise, was the equipment of choice. And I was saying, well, on the first exercise for the lats, why don't we do a bent over row, a bilateral bent over row? And she said, yeah, okay, that's good. 
And I said, and then for the second set, instead of doing it bilaterally, do it alternating so you get a little rotation in the thoracic spine. And she goes, well, why don't we stand upright and reach our hands in front and pull our elbows to our sides? I'm like, um, no. <laughs> All right, nope. but look. We've got a problem here with gravity. She's not a professional though, right? Yeah. Yeah, she was a professional. Oh, she was a fitness professional? She was a fitness professional. Oh, okay. That's And that's she was being paid $400 an hour, $400 an hour for personal training. So what do you think, Kelly? Like, let's say you were put in charge of idea and you were in charge of group fitness entirely. So like, what do you think that group fitness instructors as a whole, like really need to focus on? Would it be biomechanics? Would it be physiology? Well, like, what do you think is most lacking and would make the biggest impact if people had a better sort of appreciation of it? It depends what they're teaching. If they're teaching any kind of strength and conditioning biomechanics, Mm -hmm. for sure. Mm-hmm. Or, or kinesiology and biomechanics. And if they're teaching, uh, the, if you're training with the cardiovascular system, then physiology. Mm-hmm. Because I, I see people in, you know, I teach a lot of indoor cycling. I'm a Schwinn mm-hmm. Master trainer and I see people doing horrible things, horrible things. Like in, what? Well, just zero recovery and uber high intensity and mm. just complete disrespect for the energy systems and so back to this extreme yeah group. yeah gotcha yeah back to this really crazy extreme and the, and and every class they do is tabata 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 mm. tabata and you know it's like well that was one way of doing it there's a lot of other research out there that's really compelling and really exciting and offer you some very accessible, effective ways to train people that are not just 20 seconds on, 10 seconds off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people are using methods for teaching purposes that are interesting to them. So, Mm -hmm. you know, we we teach others what we like to do ourselves in many instances. What's interesting about your comment on biomechanics uh, some certifications claim to offer a course in biomechanics, but it's not really biomechanics. It's really just exercise techniques. So they call it biomechanics, but it isn't in fact biomechanics. And um, I have yet to see a real biomechanics course offered in any of the certification programs in in a way that will truly help trainers understand what's going on and what's happening in front of them. And as Gigi and I talk about when people are doing things, it's not just what they're doing, it's why they're doing it. And more often than not, the reason why they do what they do is to solve biomechanical problems. And that's what we do. And, you know, it's, it's interesting because I've used this analogy for years. If, if you want to see a perfect squat, go to a playground. Go in the park. I mean, with COVID, it's tough, but go in a park and watch a bunch of toddlers squat. And they do it perfectly, by the way. If you want to see a perfect squat, go watch those little toddlers do it. They intuitively are solving biomechanics problems. They are maintaining a stable base. They are maintaining their equilibrium. Their posture and alignment is fine. They're doing it great. So then what happens? They come to the personal trainers and we screw them up. Because we don't understand those things and we're teaching things that we don't understand. And yeah, that's what happens. And so it makes 
for a very challenging environment for people to really make sufficient gains because of a lack of fundamental understanding in movement science. And, you know, that's what we try to do on this podcast is, is offer that perspective and, and provide the information for people to at least get them thinking about it. Yeah, I think especially in group fitness, because for some reason, group fitness instructors are given less opportunity to learn for their certification, which never made sense to me. Hmm. You know, the hmm. manuals are like half an inch thick versus a personal trainer manual, which is two inches to three inches thick because group exercise instructors don't need to understand any kind of true any, anything solid about how to write a program. And you, you, if you're teaching strength and conditioning, you have to understand basic program design, and they don't teach that. And and so they're given a tiny little bit of knowledge, and they hang on to the smallest things. And you hear them queuing, you know, about the knees, or you know, don't. I remember, don't flex forward more than thirty degrees without putting your hand on your thigh to support your back. Okay, so how do I clean my teeth? How do I pick up my two-year-old? How do I how my tie my shoes <laughs> you know it sounds to me then and maybe i'm misguided in this but it seems that those certifications were more about the choreography as mm-hmm. opposed to the science so is, is that an accurate observation was it more about how to teach this choreography and to create energy because it would seem to me that to be a really good group instructor, you probably need to have a better scientific foundation than working with someone one-on-one because you potentially have 40 people in front of you yep. that you have to help and manage. Yeah, and there's there's no there's no solid foundation in how to look at someone's posture and or look at someone and look at how they're squatting and try and understand what's going on with them and why they're why that person would be squatting like they would, what kind of strategy that person is employing based on what's going on with their body. Are they shifting to one side? Are they, are the knees valgus or the varus or the, what's happening with their back? Are they they're not taught how to look at someone and observe someone and understand what's going on with them the way we are as a personal trainer? And it breaks my heart because, and, and you're certainly not, taught how to write a program for strength and conditioning. Mm. So you you see strength and conditioning classes and they don't make sense. They just don't make sense. In yeah. terms of like the physics, like 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 what you're talking about doing a reverse shoulder press, I guess, something like that. Are you talking about that? Uh, yeah, not even that. Just the order of the exercises, the, the way that the exercises are put together to just improve someone's general strength. Like you, you, mm. you, you're taught basic exercise order. I mean, really simple exercise order. But you're not really taught that in a group exercise certification. They don't really teach that. They don't really teach you how to write a, how to write a strength program. You know? Interesting. You know, the first time that I ever saw body pump, I think was like 1996 six or seven sometime around there then um, at ECA in Miami and, and Les Mills had come and they were doing an introduction to body pump. It may have even been one of the first times it hit the States. And there must've been 75, 80 
people in that certification program. There were two instructors on the stage. There were like 80 group fitness instructors that were the participants and they were doing some type of squatting move. And I'm looking around the room, watching at all these people and just cringing by, you know, what I saw taking place in front of me. Um, it was a visual cacophony of bad motion is really what it was. And the instructors <laughs> were not engaging. I mean, they didn't pick anybody. I mean, even one person, just one person that everybody could look at and say, here, let's try to get this correct. And everyone learned from this experience. It was really about here's the pace, here's the beat, here's the rhythm, here's the steps, here's the sequence. And I, I walked out of there and I thought, okay, I'm glad I'm not doing this because uh, I would lose my mind trying to teach in that environment. Well, yeah. Sorry, uh, to play devil's advocate though for a moment, and I'm, I've never taught group fitness, but so Kelly, like what's the line? Because to me, group fitness is like um, in, in some ways a good way different, different than personal training to where like you're coming in, you're going to like figure out how to do these moves the best that you can. And like, you're not coming in with the expectation that you're going to get like tailored one-on-one. And because to me, the reason I've never gravitated towards group fitness is that like, it's, there's too much going on. Like I wouldn't know how to like come over to one person and like yell over music and be like, Hey, so, you know, it's just, I couldn't do it. So like, what, what do you, what's the right, what's the Goldilocks zone for being a group fitness teacher and finding that balance between obviously someone's really struggling. That's one thing, but like sort of what PJ's talking about, just a lot of people moving in different ways. Like what's the line of like being a, a competent teacher versus, um, you know, I guess an incompetent teacher in terms of how much connection you have with an individual student? I think being able to teach a multi-level class, being able to regress and progress the same Mm -hmm. exercise and teach it smoothly so that you can on the spot teach the foundation of the move and progress it a couple of times to show level one, two, three, for Mm -hmm. one better word, so that people can Mm self-select the correct level of the exercise. So one program becomes three programs you can everyone is successful and you you're not correcting as much because people are choosing the right level of the exercise on the whole if you teach first the foundational movement and you teach in a way that the foundational movement teaches the next level of the exercise and that level of the exercise invisibly teaches the next level of the exercise you come up with something that's pretty good Mm -hmm. is that a strategy you actually use like you you start off by showing like a basic motion then say all right and then for anyone that feels like they have this now you can try this and then you oh that yeah yeah, that's great because i've seen that on tv but typically there'll be like one teacher then there'll be another person doing sort of like a modif- yeah. But if yeah. you're only one teacher, obviously, unless yeah. you have a student that volunteers, that would be tough to do. But that's wonderful. Yeah. I really like yeah, that. Yeah, that's what you do. So, say for example, you're doing a supine dumbbell fly, mm-hmm. and say you're alternating it. So you're supine, you're holding dumbbells, and you're doing one arm down and up, the other arm down and up. You could start with your feet on the floor, and then say if you want to challenge your core a little bit more, bring your feet up off the floor like you're sitting in a chair continue to alternate the fly now if you want even more challenge 
extend your opposite leg to the arm and create some asymmetry so that you really feel your core engaged. So it's the same exercise, but you've added two layers that make it more challenging and destabilize it. Let me, let me ask you something, Kelly, when you're developing Group X programs, to what extent at all do you consider a progressive theme across the programs, not necessarily within a class, because what I hear you saying is there's a progression and regression of exercises within a class environment, but is it ever sort of programmatic to create progression over a series of classes so that you start at point A and you end at some point, you know, down the road where you're trying to get to, or is that too much like personal training? I wish, I wish group exercise could be like that. I think small, small group training is that hybrid where you can uh-huh. get that progression because you've got basically working. If it's a closed session and you're working with the same people for a specific period of time you can do that in small group training but group Uh exercise is a drop in drop out situation and it's impossible to take someone from a and move them through a series of so each class has to be its own little beast but i see but if you if you're working with a very consistent group of people, you know, I, I'll do a theme for the class. So maybe the theme is balance um, or the theme is postural muscles or the theme is um, mobility and, and strength or, you know, I might have a, a theme for the class and I'll keep that for a few weeks. Yeah, that's cool. So Kelly, tell us a little bit about what I know now you're doing some things online, right? Mm-hmm. So tell Sorry. us, yeah, tell us about that. And how is it? Are you like still teaching? I'm assuming that you've got several, you're still teaching group classes online, right? I am. I'm teaching twice a week to a, a class called Everyday Strength, and that's for the active aging adult. Okay. And then I'm teaching three times a week for Schwinn, a an indoor cycling class. And Monday is short, high intensity intervals. Wednesday is threshold intensity, and Friday is mixed. So first of all, how do people find these classes if they want to sign up for them? Well, the everyday strength classes through Breakthrough Breakthrough Fit Breakthrough okay. Live, and uh, that is a membership. Mm-hmm. Um, you could try it out. I think they have a, a great deal where you can join for two weeks for a small amount of money just to try it out. But that's Breakthrough, B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-U, Breakthrough.com or BreakthroughFit.com. And mm-hmm. um, they have a live Zoom whole schedule of classes. Mm-hmm. And then Homeroom Fit is how I'm doing my Schwinn classes. And then I'm also recording classes for the American Specialty Health twice a week from my living room, again, for the active aging adult. And what's in those classes? What's in the specialty classes? Um, They are from, it's a membership uh, situation and it's for the aging, for the aging adult, um, active aging adult. And I'm just working on strength and conditioning, general Mm -hmm. strength and conditioning. 
but I do a lot of work with balance and mm-hmm. work for posture and 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 falls prevention and mm-hmm. you know the intermediate level class uses a chair that for light touch and I get on and off the chair and use the chair as a prop and then the advanced level class just uses um, any equipment that I want. Cool. So I've been doing some online, you know, training and treatments actually since COVID started and, uh, you know, I've had my share of challenges and, and learning experiences. So tell us about some of yours. Like what, what do you like about virtual training? What are some of the disadvantages? Um, well, I'm, I'm also doing a lot of personal training on uh, virtually and I have two clients that I'm seeing that are not in the Los Angeles area, one in New York and one in uh, San Jose, and I'm seeing them through Zoom, and that's mm-hmm. actually good. They're both fitness professionals. They're just looking to get motivated. They're bored with themselves, and they, they want someone to tell them what to do, and that's fun. And then I have a 95-year-old client who I see oh, wow. who I train through FaceTime, and and I've got a 91-year-old who I see through FaceTime and an 80-year-old that I see through FaceTime. So I've got some older clients, and I think the biggest challenge with them is the technology mm. and them understanding that I need to speed them. Not only for 80 years old, trust me, I'm, I'm in that category too. Yeah, yeah, me too. But, but they don't seem to understand that I need to see them. <laughs> uh-huh. They think that it's good that they can see me, but they don't seem to realize... I need to see as much of them as possible so that I can see what's going on with them. Um, You know, it's really hard to get the whole of their body um, in the shot. You know, I'm like, I can see the ceiling. The roof looks good, but I can't see you. (laughs) Speaking of that, though, PJ, once we were having a conversation of this uh, off the record or off the air, um, but I think one of the interesting things is that, you know, one of the common themes on our podcast is this idea of like feedback and cueing. And, and so when someone is not in front of you and you, I, my original training as a trainer was that like tactile feedback was a critical component of like, you know, teaching someone exercise and I was all over them and touching them and saying, squeeze here and touch this. And, um, and it wasn't really until uh, I went to grad school for motor learning and started, you know, really diving in deep to all these, all the literature on the topic, which is like, you know, that can actually interfere with the, when you're giving them what we call like an internal focus. So what I think is interesting is that taking away the tactile feedback um, actually can help the performer, the person doing the exercise, because they're going to have to solve problems. Like when someone's actually like guiding you in every motion, and I've learned this firsthand, you're actually sort of robbing them of some of the problem solving that comes along with exercise. So I think the virtual stuff, and you have to figure it out, but when done well, um, can actually help the, 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 the person that you're training. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you're group fitness instructors are just the worst at this, you know, the, if, if you stand outside a group fitness room, and you listen to them on the microphone, this is what you'll hear. Lift, 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 lift. Squeeze, 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 squeeze. Eight, seven, six, five, four, three. And then they get really fancy. Three, 
three, three, <laughs> three, three. Oh, come on. They can count. They can count better than you can, apparently. But, you know, squeeze what? How about a nice external cue? Drive your heel into the floor as you lengthen out through the spine, out through the top of your head as you stand up. Like, let's give them some intelligent coaching. Drives yeah, that nuts. is that's something that's emerging. And we we did a, an episode in our podcast on just that. And there are other people that are starting to push that message out, you know, and, and like anything the the trans the translation the transition from science to the fitness world takes time in my experience mm -hmm. you know when you see a really interesting cutting edge scientific research study emerge it's usually 10 to 15 years before that concept hits the fitness industry so there is a latency there we've all tried to speed that up a little bit i'm not sure that it necessarily can um, artificially accelerate. I think it just takes time for people to really understand what's going on and start to use it. My challenge is when they see it, they just jump right in, they dive right in and they start using it without necessarily understanding the original intent and, and what it's doing. They just use it because it's cool. Um, that's what we're trying to avoid. We're trying to get people to be a little bit more thoughtful about the application of these things rather than just rushing off to do it. But I think the world is changing a little bit. And, you know, Kelly, if, if there's one lesson, you know, thinking back on all of your experiences and the wonderful things that you've done and learned, if there's one lesson that you could say this changed things for me, or this really woke me up and got me down this path. Can you think of anything? And maybe it's not one thing, but mm -hmm. was, you know, is there one lesson that you can think about that said, Hmm, you know, this is really going to change what I do and how I do it. You. <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. when well, I did, when, when, did, you, when did you send her the check, DJ? When, no, when no, did you say Equinox. At Equinox, when I went through the training oh, at Lord. Equinox and did foundations and BMS and, and sat through it and then took it a second time and went through the exam. And it just, you know, up until that point, I thought I had a good understanding of the human body and you just blew me to bits. I, mm -hmm. I was like, Oh boy, I got a lot more to learn. And well, that's the kindest great. thing that anyone's ever said to me. So I appreciate that. It was um, I was just true. trying to be a hard ass. I didn't realize you were actually going to enjoy it. So. Yeah, no, it was great. And at the same time, right after I went through that course, I did the ACSM exercise physiology course, um, mm -hmm. and that was really challenging too so it was it was a really good period of time where I was just a sponge and and it's made me into a huge sponge you, you know it's it I I I love learning but I have a questioning mind and I don't just take things blindly I like to reason with them and under, and try and understand them and and I think you taught me to do that not to just take things on on blind like this is what they said so this is therefore it's good you know <laughs> um they said that um it, it's taught me to question 
Yeah, that's the trickiest part. It, it is, is the, the trickiest, trickiest part. part. So, Kelly, you know, I know you have a book coming out. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about what that is and, and we can plug that for you? Um, it's called A Professional's Guide to Small Group Training through Human Kinetics. It's coming out next year, probably um, mid to late next year, second quarter. And it is a really thorough guide to setting up and developing a successful small group tra- small group training business, mm. including, mm. you know, how to set up a business, safety, legals, all of that really awful stuff that no one likes to learn about is in that book. It was like having a root canal every time <laughs> I sat down to the computer. But <laughs> I did all the hard work for you. Kelly, do you think that's going to be the trend that that's emerging forward like this? Cause that's, I'm seeing that a lot in New York becoming a lot more popular. Yeah, I think so. I think it's, I, I think small group training, I have a, a group that I work with twice a week and I just mm-hmm. love it. It, it is the perfect hybrid because you get that personalized attention mm-hmm. But with the group synergy and right. energy, energy and right. socialization, and I think group exercise is not going away. But I think it will take a different, uh, you know, with with COVID and and social distancing. Who knows before we can get back in a crowded room and exercise together? But small group training allows for social distancing and. It has all the benefits and socialization of a regular group exercise class, but but you can really coach someone and, and really individualize the exercise for them. Well, as a clinician, I love it because, you know, for me, if someone asks me, you know, what they should be doing outside of coming to see me for treatment, um, you know, there's a lot of variables to that. But if someone, you know, putting someone in a group fitness class, you know, it can, it can be a free-for-all. They're just one of maybe 50 people at a time. And, mm. um, and look, you know, there's, uh, we live in the real world and there's a, there's a price point to getting personal training and even hoping that you're getting quality personal training. But like the, the small group classes where at least you're getting supervision, um, and you're getting the benefits of like, you know, cause a lot of people, let's face it, don't love to exercise on their own. So like the social aspect of it, the community aspect of it, you know, you get the energy, the motivation from working out with people, you're at least getting supervision. Um, I think it's, it's awesome. So I, I'm a big advocate of small group training. Yeah, I am too. And I, I just love my, my small groups that I work with, you know, I, I've got, women who are cancer survivors alongside of women who have had, you know, torn ACLs. And so I, I, I think a small group setting allows you to do that a lot more. You can personalize the program. It's not so general. Yeah. And I think, you know, look, with your book coming out next year, I think there will be a blueprint or a model for people to follow. And who knows, maybe you'll create the next certification program that we need in our industry to help people to be successful in this environment. So this has been a a really wonderful conversation and, and, you know, listening to you, Kelly, and your experiences and sharing your thoughts and expertise with us uh, has been really wonderful. We're so glad you were able to join us. Um, 
you know, anything you want to leave our listeners with, because, you know, everything that you've said so far has been a pearl of wisdom. So what else can you tell our listeners to uh, help them along their personal journey? Well, I would just say keep an open mind and keep learning because you can't, you can never know too much. Question what you learn and, 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 but keep an open mind and, and be thoughtful in your process. Well said. Gigi? Love it. Uh, I have nothing to add on top of that. I think that's lovely. I think that is a wonderful sentiment. And so to all of our listeners, we thank you once again for joining us. And we look forward to being with you once again in a future episode of Fitness for Consumption. Bye, all. Bye.